And as I was preparing for this, I, I just, you know, I, I love being the pastor of this church and, and I love the things that we're doing. I love reading what it is that people say about our church and what God is doing in their life as they come here and what they experience. So I thought I'd begin today by sharing a couple of the, the comments that have made, been made on some, of the, on some of the connections cards as of late. Can I do that? Well, it says, what do I like most about Calvary Jupiter? It says, the love of God shines. Very cool. One person said, the com- it's comfortable here. One person said, what I like about Calvary Jupiter, the genuine Christ-centered people. So I thought that was great. And then uh, another one said, what do I li- like most about Calvary Jupiter? The people. That was good. Another one says, the casualness and the organization, which I always find interesting when, when people say that we're organized. We work very hard to. But, you know, some people will say something like, you know, I've given up on this, you know, I've given up on organized religion. You ever heard that? Just invite them here to disorganized religion. We'll take care of them. <laughs> one person said, I love this church. I've grown so much. It's a privilege to do ministry with you. I love reading things like that. Then also, people send emails, and sometimes the emails are, are, are fun also. This one says, wow, I've never had a pastor personally greet me with such sincerity as you have, which I thought was, was kind of cool. Um, I wanted to comment on how awesome it felt to have someone call me the very next day to let me know about life groups when I wrote on the back of my welcome card. You know, we, we place a lot of emphasis on if you write something on the card, we're going to respond. And uh, I'm always surprised to find that not everybody does that. One says, I, I very much enjoyed your sermon this past Sunday. One of my primary concerns is when looking for a church, that it must be a church that opens up and teaches the Bible, and Calvary Jupiter certainly does that. The people are very friendly, and I like the atmosphere. Thank you so much. I look forward to attending again. One said, thank you for your email as recent transplants from, from the north. We're really enjoying Jupiter, really enjoying Calvary Jupiter. Your teaching is a breath of fresh air for us. It says, I'm certain there is something big and exciting that he wants us to do here, so finding the right church is critical. We look forward to joining a growth group and getting to know all of you. I can honestly say, this one says, I can honestly say that I have never learned so much or felt so welcomed into a community as I do at Calvary. I can't wait to see what is in store for me next. Again, thank you so much. I'm so excited to share my experience. Um, this one says, the teaching has been the greatest gift of all. I don't say that lightly. God has used your gifts to reveal himself in a powerful, powerful way. Um, my wife wrote that. <laughs> then it's, it, it goes on and it says, we were met with warmth, kindness, and a genuine sense of the Holy Spirit in the midst. I hadn't received many joyful respo- surprises lately, but Calvary Jupiter changed all that. May you know the difference the little things make. May you be blessed for seeing the need underneath the appearance. This one says, Hi, Pastor Dan. Thank you so much for welcoming. I can honestly say my first time at Calvary Jupiter was amazing. This one said, I just wanted to let you know how amazing Chris and his team of youth leaders are. They've made such an impact in my older son. His love for God and his faith is all thanks to your amazing team. Chris was quick to give all the credit to Jesus, as it should be, but Jesus is doing some amazing work through Chris and the youth ministry team. We're far from a model family, that's for sure, but Calvary, what Calvary brings to our lives is beyond measure. God bless you, and thanks for all you and your amazing team are doing. So I thought that was very, very cool to... 
I thought that was a, a very cool thing, just to see and maybe just share what, what's going on and what people are experiencing. Now, I believe, and I hope and trust, that we are a friendly church, and we do our very best to make sure that we are representing God to the very best of our ability, representing Him in a way that He would be honored. I believe that God's heart, his desire, is to reach people who need to come into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's his intention. That's his heart. That's what he's called us to partner with him in doing, especially here in this community. So we're intentional at times about some of the things that we do. You know, at at times that we will hand out invite cards and we'll say, hand these out to your friends. We give pens that have the Calvary Jupiter logo, and we just say, hey, pass these out somewhere. Interesting thing, true story. I was, happened to be at another church locally because of, of the certain situation, that, and I just happened to be there, and uh, I needed a pen. This is a local church, and um, I'm up there at the, the lectern, and uh, I need a pen, and so they have a little drawer there, so I open it up, and what do I pull out but a Calvary Jupiter pen, okay? So it's, it's, uh, it's good to know that we're infiltrating other places. That's not really the intention of the pens. The pens are kind of to go to places where people need the Lord, not, not to in- infiltrate other churches, but, but uh, you know, it's kind of fun to see that. So, so we're intentional. We think through, we're, we're shifting our focus from primarily communicating with our community through Christian radio, but now trying to uh, continue communicating with our community through secular radio, making sure that we are connecting with those in our community who have not yet entered into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We do certain things. For instance, once a month we have Beach Reach where we take waters that have the logo of our church and we simply go to the beach and pass them out. People realize they've received something nice from the church, from Jesus, essentially. And, and, and so when God wants to move in their life, they'll remember what it is that it was a believer that did something nice for them. Yesterday, I'm told that there are about 20 of you who went to Abacoa on your 4th of July weekend. And you just simply volunteered to make the Abacoa 4th of July celebration happen. There was a booth there from Calvary Jupiter. And so we were able to just share that we're a church in the area. We're here and we wanted to communicate that. Here's what we know. We know that the Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit, in the old English it says, quickens certain things to us when we need to remember, we would say. When God wants us to remember something, he brings it to our mind. But typically what he brings to our mind is something that we've already heard or seen. So when God is moving in the lives of people, we want to make sure that as he's quickening, that they have a frame of reference as they're remembering at the time when they need to see God, that they do remember that there are some people from Calvary Jupiter who loved them and were there for them and didn't ask for anything from them. We were just there. Now, when you bring your friends to Calvary Jupiter and God begins to bring people, at that point, we're very intentional about the environment that we are setting up. We want to make sure that our environment is never a distraction to somebody coming into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, my sermons can be, at times, very straightforward and offensive, and I can say some things. However, we don't want the environment to be that way. With me so far? And so we're intentional. We think about what does somebody experience as they come into the parking lot? What do they experience as they walk in? What do they experience as they're, they're checking in their children to a group of people that they've never met before? What, what, is, what is it that we can do to enhance that, make that easier? How are we communicating with them that this is a safe place? Because in everything that we do, we are representing God. And so we always want to make sure that we're taking it to the next level. We ask that every person who would call Calvary Jupiter their 
church home, that at least once a month you're participating in some way helping to create that environment that we're, so that we're able to communicate the timeless message as God brings people to this place. And so we, we invite you and we ask you and at times we implore you and we beg. But we, we want to see, we want to make sure that this environment is always the right place where people feel comfortable as they come into at least the environment. And so whatever variable we can control in our end, we certainly want to do that. So as we look at James chapter 2 today, the, the first couple of verses, I believe that in some of these things that James is talking about, we do very well. But, but James is looking at something in the life of the church at large, and, and he's concerned, and he sees something. And apparently it's important enough that he says, I really need to deal with this in this short little book that I'm writing to the church. So we're going to jump in, James chapter 2, verse 1, and here's what he says. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, that's how it says it in my Bible. On the New International Version, I placed it on your outline. I I think it's a little bit more clear. And here's what he says. He says, my brothers, again, writing to believers, he says, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Here's what he's saying. Don't, when you come to church, choose to associate with people or exclude people based upon some perceived benefit that they might have for you. When you come to the church, don't differentiate between this person or that person. Apparently, even in the early church, the church was beginning to stray into an area that concerned James. Now, when James says this, he's talking about not differentiating people because you show personal favoritism. He's not talking about not separating because of what you and I would call sin and what the Bible calls sin. Now, see if I can unpack this a little bit and give some type of differentiation. There on your outline, I wrote that James is not talking about uh, separating over sin, but snobbery. In this chapter, James is talking to people who are separating with other people because they're a little bit snobbish. He's not talking about our need at times to sometimes separate over the issue of sin. For instance, Paul would write this on your outline. Um, There in 1 Corinthians, I place it on your outline. Paul says, I'm writing to tell you this, that the person that you, with your pen in hand, it says, must not, what's it say? Associate with is this. Paul says there are certain people that you need to not associate with. He says anyone who calls himself a brother in Christ, but who takes part in sexual sin. Everybody see that? Or is selfish or worships idols or lies about others, or gets drunk, or cheats people, Paul says, do not even, what's it say? Eat with someone like that. There comes a point when as believers, Paul says, you have to separate from them. The reason is this. There are those who will claim to be believers, but what they are doing, because they are participating in certain things, 
because of what they are doing, claiming to be believers, they're making God look really bad because everyone knows that they are believers. They aren't repenting. They're continuing. So he says, there in your outline, he says, I'm writing to tell you that the person that you must not associate with is this. Anyone who calls himself a brother, and the first thing that he says, who takes part in sexual sin, sexual sin. Here's what this means. In the church, if somebody comes and they profess to be believers, but they're sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, they're living with them, and they're telling everybody that they're believers, James, Paul says that that's so bad, there comes a point where you have to separate from them. Now, why is that? When God set up marriage, he set up one man, one woman. He wanted them to come together for all time. God was the one who thought up sex. He wants you to get downright crazy and stupid with your spouse. He's into that. That's good. Seven babies don't lie. I want to go home and smoke a cigarette. So, but, but here's the thing. God says that, that when you sleep with somebody who's not your spouse, you're not married to them, you are taking something that God says belongs to somebody else. That belongs to that spouse, that, that husband, that wife. And when you take that, you're literally stealing from their spouse what they are supposed to get, their future spouse. And, and so God says, don't do that. Now, there are those who will continue in that. They tell people that they're believers. They claim to serve a righteous and holy God. They, and everybody kind of knows that standard, but they continue in that. And they go, well, God just has to deal with it. But you're making God look really bad because he's not looking like he's a righteous and holy God. And God says there comes a point, if you're not going to repent of that, People need to just stay away from you. You need to stay away from people who do that if they won't repent because other people are going to think that in their continued representation, wrong representation of God, they're going to think that you would represent God that way too and you have to stay away. Then he says those who take part in sexual sin or who are selfish, who is selfish. Now, how would you know that in the early church? I'm going to suggest this. The one who is selfish is the one who takes everything that God has blessed them with and they consume it wholly and completely all on themselves. They are selfish. They are not God-ish. And when the rubber hits the road, all that God gives them is consumed completely on them because it's really, in their minds, all theirs. And so... They claim, on the one hand, to serve a God who's a God of abundance, a God of generosity, a God of sacrificial giving, but their representation of him by being selfish, it's all mine and it's all about me, is the wrong representation of the God that they claim to represent. It's a wrong representation. And there comes a time when someone doesn't repent from being that selfish. The Bible says you need to step away from them because they are terribly misrepresenting his heart and his nature. It goes on to say um, someone who is selfish or who worships idols. Now, in those days, it's a little bit different for us. Our idols are a little bit different, but, but believers would at times go to other 
temples because the food was at a discount price and they would go to restaurants in those temples. It would be very much like um, today, probably the equivalent to us would be like going to Rachel's, which um, uh, that, what, Rachel's what? It's a seafood place? What, what is it? A, what is it? Why do you know that? Shame on you. Somebody always walks into that. But, but, but the thing is, we, we all know that if you're a believer, you really need to not be going to places like that because that's a terrible representation of who God is. And if people know that you're a believer and you're going there, regardless of how good the stake is, it's a terrible representation of the God that you claim to serve. He says, or worships idols or lies about others. You're just deceitful. Or who gets drunk. Now, I don't believe that he's talking about somebody who has a glass of wine, two glasses of wine, a beer, a a drink or whatever, but somebody who is developing the reputation for exceeding what is appropriate and people know you that you're just becoming a party animal and to the point where it's no longer appropriate. And uh, each person has to pray and discern what is appropriate for them and what God is leading them. But there comes a point where somebody begins to develop that reputation and they won't repent. And it's clearly not right, but they claim to worship God. And there comes a point where you have to say, you know what? The Bible says that I have to kind of separate from you because what you are doing and how you are living is a terrible representation of who God is. And everyone knows that you're a believer. Are those who cheat people There are those who claim to be believers, little fish on their cards, in the back of their car, on their truck, in their business. But when you do business with them, their ethics are atrocious. And nobody wants to do business with them because you know, and they profess to be a believer. And quite honestly, they make God look very, very bad. And so to protect, the, to protect God's, what we might call his holiness, and then also to protect his his reputation, there comes a point when God says, when people are sinning and they won't repent, there comes that time that you need to step away. You just have to separate from them because you don't want to be associated with that type of representation of who God is. Make sense? Now, James, as, as tough as that is, James, not, James is not talking about separating over the sin that we just talked about. James is talking about separating over snobbery. He's talking about something entirely different. Verse 1 again, he says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now here's what's sad. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers, uh, Christians who have all been accepted by God with their shortcomings, their sins, their broken promises, who then come to church and begin to look at other believers and begin to reject other believers by some standard that God doesn't even recognize. Some standard that they would hope that God never put on them. Let me see if I can uh, make it a little bit more clear. Go ahead and write this down. When he talks about partiality, when I show partiality between believers, it implies that I have a higher standard for acceptance than God. I have a higher standard for acceptance than God. The question, the one question that I need to have is simply, has God accepted them? Because what if God only accepted people of a certain race, a certain IQ, and a certain portfolio? If that were the case, what would happen if I didn't match up with that? So I need to look on and say, God, who is it that you've accepted? And if you've accepted them, then that's great. Without meaning to, the church had drifted into an area of categorizing other believers 
by standards that the Bible simply does not recognize, standards that God doesn't recognize. James says, let me give you one example. Now, there's many examples of this. James says, I'm going to give you one example, and it's going to really hit home because he's going to deal with probably what most of us would assume is church leadership. Verse 2, here's his, his one example. For if a man comes to your assembly, now go ahead and underline that, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, which is what my Bible says, and there also comes in a poor man dressed in dirty clothes. A couple of things in this verse. When he says someone comes to your assembly, the word for assembly there is simply the word synagogue. Does everybody see that on your outline? When the first church began, it was primarily Jewish people who were there meeting in the synagogue throughout the world, and so they were no longer welcome there, so they just went and created their synagogue, which we would refer to now as the church. It just meant meeting place, the meeting place is all it meant. So that's what they were doing. And so you're there, and you're having that. It's a place of worship. Now, Matthew Henry brings out in his commentary, you might not care about this, but the synagogue, the term, also means the place where you would have a judgment. For instance, you have some issue with another brother and, and a brother in the faith. You would come to the synagogue, the place of assembly, and there they would judge between the two. So there is some application there. And it might make sense as we go for, further. So two guys come in. One guy comes in in fine clothes. The word fine there, if you have a study Bible, it might say the word bright somewhere. Here's what's going on. In those days, there was a real differentiation, a differentiation, People wore different clothes of different statuses. Um, if you were wealthy in those days, you would wear, and it says bright clothes or, or fine clothes. The word literally means bright. So you would show up and you would have nice, clean clothes. You would also be wearing sandals. How, if you were working for somebody or you were a servant, very different society in those days, and you showed up at the same church, you probably would not have sandals on because sandals weren't given to servants. That's why in the story of the prodigal son, one of the things that the father does is he says, put, a, put the sandals on my son because servants didn't wear sandals. And so it, there was a real um, differentiation between classes based upon or status based upon clothing. So if you're just a working guy, you would have one set of clothing. You would wear it just about every day because you didn't really have a change. And if there came an opportunity for you to go wash that, you certainly would. But for the most part, you just wore the same old dirty clothes. If you were affluent, you would have changes of clothes. They would be bright or they would be clean. And so there would be a, a, a real difference between. So in those days, status was established primarily through clothing. Where here, status can be established through your, your car, you know, jewelry, whatever it is, your house. We, we, we do the same thing, but just probably in, in a little bit different ways. So the two guys show up at your church, verse 3, and it says, and you pay special attention. Go ahead and underline that. To the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in the good place. And you say, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down here by my footstool. You just, just kind of sit down. Now, James is drawing our attention to this, kind of, the, you know, very, very dramatic. When he says pay, pay special attention, the idea is to fall over. You're just literally falling over this guy. You're gazing over him that he's showing up. And then you turn to the poor guy and you go, just, you just sit over there. Now, let me give a quick disclaimer. James is not saying that there's anything wrong with being wealthy, rich, affluent, however you want to say it. There's nothing wrong with that. I've been rich and I've been poor, and I think we'd all agree rich is better. Agreed? And there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. The Bible's, and that's not, certainly not what he's talking about. But, but here's what he's talking about. It's not that you treated the rich guy good. 
There's nothing wrong with that. You treated him good. The problem is that you treated the guy who's poor not so good. You didn't treat him the same way. It's okay to treat, treat the rich guy good, but you need to treat the poor guy in the same way. Okay? Okay. So here's what's going on. If I, if I can add some, some flavor to this. He says, you're paying special attention to the one, and um, the other one you say, just, just sit over there. Two guys walk in. Then, like now, in every church, whether it was the smaller assembly, the synagogue, or the church that, that you'd meet in, or whatever church, every church has significant needs. Significant needs. I, I mean, whether, whether you come to church and you ever give a dime, we still have to pay the mortgage. And that mortgage is $25,000 a month for, for what we have right now. We still have to pay all the insurances. We have to keep all of the licenses current. We have to do all of the upkeep on the, on the, on the buses and, and on the, the trucks, whether you ever give a dime or not. We have to keep the electricity on. We have to continually upgrade the sound system. And, and we have to continually upgrade the children's ministry equipment. It just has to be done there today wherever every church and so in addition to that we have to make sure that the staff are able to pay their rent it just just has to happen and and not only that we have to make sure that when people show up and there's a significant need in their life that we're able to meet that need and from time to time we've had to pay bills for for people who are going through a difficult time whether it's a single mom and we need to pay the electric bill or buy groceries or or or, you know do, do do whatever it is we need to do we have to do that because it's something that the lord would have us to do when in, in, in addition to that, we have to make sure that we're supporting faithfully the missionaries that we've agreed to support who are taking the gospel around the world. And so we have to write that check every single week or month, regardless of what anybody ever gives to us. And so we have to provide the service and create the environment. And we have to do all of this for, for the entire church. And yet, with one tiny, itsy-bitsy little drawback, we can't bill anybody. We, we can't send you a bill and say, hey, here, here's your part. But we have to do that. And it's not just this church, it's every church. So as James is looking at this and he's writing to the, the first church, he realizes that they're going through a difficult time. And so all of a sudden, two people walk in. One guy, going through a significant difficult time in the church, you look at one guy and you go, he can't really help me. He's a nice guy, but he can't really do something. Somebody else walks in and they're affluent. They've got cash and they can help. And so there's something in your heart, if you're not careful, that you'll say, well, I need to go over there and I need to hook up with this guy because he can do something about our situation. Agreed? You can see how that can happen. Why'd you guys get really quiet when I said that? (laughs) So he says, now you have to be very careful of your heart when that takes place. Now, why is that? Because God's gone to great lengths to make us one in Christ. But we tend to chop up the body of Christ. White, black, Gentile, Jew, rich, poor. And we begin to divide and we begin to treat people at times based upon a perceived benefit or or something that that we think, some, some criterion that God wouldn't even recognize. So what does God think of all this? Well, God says, or James says in verse 4, he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, when he says judges, a judge is somebody who's making a judgment based upon the evidence. 
the evidence here. Two guys walk in. One guy's clearly not doing so well. One guy's totally rolling in cash, and it's obvious. So he says, but you've become a judge with evil motives there in the church. And the idea is that you're beginning to treat one better than the other because you think that he can help you. He can help you. Make sense? So we come to church. We're forgiven sinners. And all of a sudden, as although we're forgiven, we begin to judge people whether we mean to or not, in ways that God doesn't even recognize. And we establish sometimes a higher standard for acceptance than than even what God would have. And God would say, I can't believe that you're doing this in the church. And James would look on and he would say, if you're going to have a vibrant, if you're going to have a vibrant faith, you can't do that in the church. Now, personally, just between you and me, needs to stay in here. But I'm really glad that James dealt with this 2,000 years ago, aren't you? I mean, if James didn't deal with this 2,000 years ago, you can imagine what would be happening, happening in the church today. If James didn't deal with this 2,000 years ago, I mean, you would have pastors actively seeking out the wealthy people in their church so that they could establish relationships because of what they could do for them. You would have pastors actively seeking to play golf with wealthy people inside of their church because of what they could do for them. You would have churches that might have pews that have little gold, little gold plates with people's names as, as they honor people who are able to give. Aren't you glad that James dealt with that 2,000 years ago so we never have to deal with that again? It, it would be, if James didn't deal with this 2,000 years ago, you can only imagine that you would turn on Christian TV and you would see tele-evangelists saying things like, I need to hear right now from my $1,000 eagles. I need to hear from my $1,000 eagles right now. Now, if you're my $1,000 eagle and I hear from you right now, I want you to know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you my new book written by me. And I'll send it to you free for when I hear from my $1,000 eagles. Now, if you are one of my $10,000 lions, we need to hear from you right now today. Not only will I send you the free book, but I will also autograph that book for you. And I'm going to give you a frameable picture of me, just like this. (laughs) I need to hear from my $10,000 lions right now. Now, aren't you glad that James dealt with that 2,000 years ago? So we don't have to deal with that in the church today. Isn't that great? So James then gives a picture of what does honor God. And he says, listen, my brethren, did not God choose, verse 5, underline the word choose. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love them? Notice he says, did not God choose? Did not God choose? And here's what he's saying. You've valued the rich, you've valued those who could bring you some benefit, but you've undervalued those who don't really bring you a benefit, and you're treating people differently. Here's what he's saying. Go ahead and write this down. That God is more honored by the faith of the poor, and the reason for this is the faith of the poor honors God because it is difficult to maintain faith in a good God when life is not good. The faith of the poor honors God because it's difficult to maintain faith in a good God when life is not good. Now, when he says you've honored the rich but not the poor, the word poor is something that you can use literally or symbolically the idea of the word itself implies that anywhere that there is lack, you can use that word poor. Here's what I believe. In 
our environment. I think that's true as far as financial poverty, but for the most part, I think that it's applied in other ways, or we can apply it in other ways. For instance, I think God is honored by the faith of some who are poor right now, and your poverty, your poorness is simply that you have an illness. And the people around you, well, they're doing great. But right now you have an illness and you're praying, but God hasn't at this point healed you of your disease. And you are holding on to a faith in a good God, but if you were to be honest, right now your life isn't good. And God looks on at you and he says, I'm honored by that faith because right now you're believing in me when life isn't good. Other people, they're believing, but quite honestly their life is good. And I believe that there's going to come a day when God's going to look at you and he's going to say, you know, you are my $10,000 lion and we're going to applaud your faith. I believe that in this context, when it talks about the faith of the poor being honoring to God, I think that some of our poverty for some of us is simply you're a single mom, you're a single parent here today. And the reality of your life is it's not good. And every morning you have to get up and you have to get your child or children ready for school. You get them up, you have to do all of the work, you send them off to school, but now you have to take yourself and get yourself to work. And as you work all day and it's a difficult time, at the end of the day, now your children come home. And really, if you'd be honest, your day's just beginning because now you have to take care of the children, you have to get them ready for tomorrow, the next day, and you have to do all of that. And life isn't good, but you're still believing in a very good God. And it's a difficult time because you're doing doing all the work and on the weekend they go see the other parent and all they do is have fun and you're left to do all the work and it's difficult and life isn't good and I believe that there's going to come a day if I can sound a little bit mushy I think there's going to come a day when we're going to applaud your faith and God's going to look at you and he's going to say that you are my $10,000 lion because you held fast in your faith and you believed in me in a time when life wasn't good would you agree? Now notice verse 6. He says, but, who, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is, is it not the rich who, who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Here's what's going on. In that first church, it was a persecuted church. It was a difficult time, and we've certainly shared some of the verses of what it meant to be a believer back then. But the persecution wasn't coming from the guy who was working 10 to 12 hours a day just trying to feed his family. He didn't have time to worry about what was going on in the church. The persecution came from the people who were affluent enough and had enough free time to make misery for the church. And so he says, isn't it the rich who are actually causing you all of your problems? Now, in our society, I know we've talked about um, just the types of poverty and all that, but in that World, they were making distinctions between rich and poor based upon perceived benefits that somebody would bring. I don't know that we have that same list, but I think that, although I think we do good in this, I think that we all have our, our own list. And we look on at other believers, and we have standards of measurement, criterion, that, that God doesn't even recognize. And so I just had some fun and just sat down and and wrote down some ways that I think that if we're not careful, we can fall into and we can find ourselves judging other people. Want to hear my list? Sure? Okay. I think some people do resent rich people. You know, you drive into the church parking lot and you see the cars and something inside of you says, well, this isn't my church. I mean, look at those cars in in, in that church. I've never feel comfortable here. I think there's a resentment. 
I think sometimes people who are affluent, they kind of resent some of us who maybe are not affluent. They look on us and say, well, you must be lazy. I mean, you know, if you weren't so lazy, maybe you could get out and do something. I, I think sometimes that, that fat people, and we're not going to call them fat, we're going to call them calorically enhanced. Sometimes calorically enhanced people resent people who are skinny. They're thin. Think, think so? Now, be, before you think I'm being politically incorrect here, I just want you to know that, that um, I did discover that there is a benefit to being somewhat overweight. And it's one of the benefits that we tend to overlook. And I never knew this, but I was driving down the road and I saw a bumper sticker and I read it and I said, there is a benefit and here it is. You want to hear it? Very simply this. Here's what the bumper sticker said. It said that fat people are harder to kidnap. <laughs> and I thought, it's true. <laughs> Older single women Older single women resent younger single women. Like, this is our pool. Get out of here. What are you doing here? Um, Younger single guys, you resent older single guys. You know, you've had your chance. Get out of here. This is our time. Um, Black people resent white people, and white people resent black people. Uh, Sometimes we have what we would call a World War II mentality, and we resent Asian people. And uh, it's just a, a subtle thing. Sometimes divorced people resent, and they say, we look at divorced people, and we, we say, well, what did they do? And we begin to judge them. Single moms, we say, well, what did she do to find herself in this circumstance? What about working moms? We look on at working moms, and we say, you know, if she really loved her children, she'd stay home. And we set up a category that the Bible doesn't really talk about. What about sometimes we resent people who send their kids to public school? Sometimes we, send, we resent people who send their kids to private school, being so snooty. Uh, sometimes we resent people who homeschool their kids, and uh, we resent that. Sometimes we resent athletes, and we think they're nothing but a bunch of dumb jocks. Sometimes we, we resent artsy people, and we think, well, they've got to be gay. <laughs> sometimes we resent business people because they represent to us somebody who did us harm in the past, and they remind us of somebody. And sometimes we resent people who have a lot of kids. And we say, how irresponsible is it in this society and in this world to have that many kids? And then sometimes we resent people who have only a few people, uh, have only a few children or no children, and we say, well, how could you be so selfish? And here's what we do. We set up categories, whether overtly or not, and we begin to look on at other people and we make subtle judgments based upon things that the Bible doesn't even speak about. And here's what I think. I think God looks on at us when we do that. And he says, you know, when I saved you, you were on your way to hell. And um, I overlooked a lot of stuff and, and, and I, you know, you were um, not praying to me. You weren't seeking to me. You only sought me when you were in trouble. And I, I, I accepted you and I forgave you. And now you come into the church and you set up all these little categories that I don't even talk about. And you don't accept the people who are sitting next to you based upon some category that's not even in the Bible. And sometimes you even do that without even knowing somebody else's story and you judge them. To which God would say, how would you feel if I treated you that way? Now, here's the good news. Verse 8. Verse 8 begins the good news, and it says, If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, and here's the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing good. Here's what he says. Very simple. You just need to follow one law. He calls it the royal law. 
And when you see somebody and inside you're about to make that subtle judgment, all you have to remember is one thing. I just need to love them the way that I would want them to love me. It actually comes from the Old Testament. Notice there in your outline, all the way from Leviticus. And it says in Leviticus that you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not take vengeance. Now underline this. Nor bear any, what's it say? Grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall underline, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's why. Because I am the Lord. Here's what he's saying. You're a follower of God. You're a believer. And God says, if you're going to be a follower of mine, then here's the deal. No grudges, and you have to love everyone just like it's you. Just love your neighbor as yourself. That's the deal. One rule. There you have it. Now, in the New Testament, people came to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, tell us what the the first commandment is. What's the greatest commandment? Now, the reason they came to him in that time, in the Old Testament, there were 600, 600 laws and rules and regulations that you had to keep. And so everybody realized you can't keep all 600 rules at one time. So what is the most important? What's the second? What do we focus in on? So they come to Jesus with this dilemma. What's first? What's second? What do we focus in on? Jesus says this. Jesus says, you've got 600. I'm going to bring you down to just two. Just two. Just got to keep these two. And that's one we're talking about today. He says, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Well, once again, verse 8, here's what it says. If you're fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Here's what he's saying. James is saying, go ahead and write this down, that church health is determined by our love for God and our love for people. When I love people as I would want them to love me, it eliminates my tendency towards partiality. Now, in case we miss it, in case we didn't really get it, verse 9, he goes on and he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James feels the need to drive this home because quite honestly, here's what I can tell you about yourself. Me too. There has never been a time when after church on Sunday, I head to the house, I run into my bedroom, I get down on my knees by my bed, and I begin to pray that God would forgive me for the sin of partiality. You've never done that, have you? Neither have I. And James realizes that we might pass this by if he doesn't drive this point home. Here's what he's saying. That if you break the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself by showing partiality, you're breaking the whole law, breaking the whole thing. Verse 10, again, James knows that we would pass this by. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. See if I can explain this. He says, you'd think this is a minor point. And that's why he says, I'm kind of driving it home, this whole partiality thing. He says, but 
If you keep the whole law but you break one part, you've broken the whole thing. Let's say you're here today, and we're not here today. We're, let's say we're out west and we're suspended over the Grand Canyon. Over the Grand Canyon, head first, hanging down, there's a beam going across. We're suspended by a chain. Now, that chain has only 10 links in it, 10 links in the chain. How many of those links have to break before we're in real trouble? One. James says it's kind of like that. You think it's not that important, it's a small thing, but only one has to break and we're in real trouble. And, and the idea is that the church is going to be going into that direction if we're not careful. Verse 11, he says, He who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So if, if you enter into partiality, even though you think it's a small thing, it's still one of the things, and you become a lawbreaker, a transgressor. So what do you do? Verse 12, he says, So speak, that's with your mouth, and so act, that's with your behavior, as those who are to be judged. Underline that. By the law of liberty. Here's what he's saying. Here's what I'm to do. I'm called to act like someone who's going to be judged rather than someone who is a judge. So in all of my interactions, I'm called to be somebody who's going to be judged, not by somebody, or not like somebody who's going to be a judge. Verse 13, he says, For judgment will be merciless, to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me read that again. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what I realized. That in receiving me, God had to overlook a bunch of stuff. And he still does. And he's given me mercy. There's going to be a day, and we're going to call that Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, my cry to God will not be for judgment. It's going to be for mercy. I give mercy now, getting rid of the partiality. I do that now because that's what I'm going to need on that day. If I go through judgment now, judging everybody, setting up these little categories, then he says, I want you to know, Judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. So it's, it's a very strong warning. Again, he's not talking about separating over sin, but over the things that God doesn't recognize. Now, as we close, very, very, very quickly, if you're here today and you've never in, invited Jesus Christ into your life, maybe it's because you've had a very bad experience with other believers. You walked in and um, you didn't fit in, you didn't feel like you fit in, and you just felt it. And so that caused you to walk away from him. I want you to know that wherever that happened, that was sin on part of whoever did that. But don't let that keep you from a relationship with him. As we've looked at it today, if God has given you the faith to place your trust in Jesus Christ, then do that today. Because here's what I can tell you. As much as God says there needs to be no partiality between those of us who are believers, God, as he looks at this earth, shows no partiality. He loves every person the same. And he wants every person to come into that relationship with him. And so today, if you're here and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, and as I close in prayer, simply as I pray, just simply say, Jesus Christ, come into my life. I'm inviting you in. 
forgive me of my sins. This is all brand new to me, but I want to begin today that relationship with you. And if you do that, he promises to come into your life. And he promises to make some very incredible changes. And here's what I can tell you. You've never met one person who's invited Jesus Christ into their life and begun to walk with him who has ever said, I regret making that decision. As a matter of fact, you've only met people who've come to that place where they've invited him in. The only thing that they've ever said is, I regret that I waited so long. And so if that's you today, simply as we close in prayer, invite him in. But then I'm going to ask you to do something else. On the back of your card, you notice it says my next step. Would you just let us know that today that you accepted Jesus Christ into your life? Just check the box and then place it in one of the offering boxes on the way out. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, as we close, Lord, I pray that if there's in any way that we corporately, individually, in any way have been showing partiality, and here's what we ask. We ask God that you'd reveal it because we want to so reflect you and your heart and your intention for this community and for this congregation. So, Father, we pray that you would reveal it. And right now, Lord, as it comes to mind, as, as you bring that to, our, to the forefront of our mind, Father, right now, we just renounce it. We realize that if we're doing that in any way, that it's sin, and we need to just let that go. We confess it, and um, we're done with it. Father, for those who are here today who've invited you into their life, as, as they've just, in their own spirit, said, Jesus Christ, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and wash me clean. Lord, I pray that this very supernatural sense of your presence would be in each and every one who makes that decision today. And then, Father, that there would be a, a newness, uh, just a sense of your presence as they go forward. And then, Lord, help us to know how we can best minister as we go forward. Thank you for each and every one who came out on this day following the holiday. And we just thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.